0: Welcome back to Mama Mystery. I am your host, Kelly. And I am your co-host, Austin. And before we get started, we have some new Patreons to shout out. We haven't done this for a few episodes, so we've got quite a few. Are you ready? Run through them. Let's do it. We've got Caitlin Walters. Hell yes. <laughs> Whitney Jones. Awesome. Lydia Black. Boom. London Loveless. Awesome. Good name. Cara- I know. I love that name. She's been a Patreon before. I recognize the name because I've always thought that was such a cool name. Cara McAnally. Very cool. Brooke Miles. Thanks a million, Brooke. Kayla Clark. Thanks, Kayla. Andrea Gallo. Awesome. Mindy Dreer. Yep. Taylor Hayes. woo And Justin Little.
1: Awesome.
0: Thank you guys so much. I'm going to be sending stickers out hopefully by the end of this week. I've got about half of the notes written, but man, the more we get, like the harder it is for me to write all these notes and, you know, I'll figure it out, but you're going to get them soon. I promise. I promise.
1: I promise. This car, there's a Carfax commercial I always reference and it goes, yeah, just show me the Carfax. And he says, I have something better than a Carfax. I have a note. This car runs great. Great.
0: I promise. I like
1: that.
0: Classic. If you've seen that, let me know. That's kind of an old one. Yep. So, today we are talking about the Green River Killer. Jeez. This is a story recommended to us on Instagram by Kelsey M. Liu. So, thank you very much for that recommendation. We accept recommendations through our Mama Mystery podcast Instagram and also on Mama Mystery.com there's a request form and I get all of the requests, so please know they don't go unnoticed, but I do get a lot, so I just keep them on a list and you know hopefully I, you know, we'll cover it someday as long as there's enough info. Today there's plenty of info, and yet I'm trying to keep these episodes a little bit shorter and sweeter so that we can pump more out throughout the week. However, this serial killer, although he's not as infamous as Ted Bundy or even BTK, his list of victims is longer than both of theirs combined. Jeez. Yeah.
1: VTK is wild. That story went on for like years.
0: Oh my gosh, yeah. It did, and so did this one. So, Gary Ridgeway... Was born on February 18, 1949, in Salt Lake City, Utah, but moved to Washington State when he was only 11. He was one of three boys, and on brand for most serial killers, his home life growing up was less than pleasant. His mother was said to have been very domineering, and his parents often fought violently. Gary had issues wetting the bed up into his early teens, and every time he would, his mom would wash his genitals. So this was obviously humiliating, and it created this, like, passionate rage towards his mother. I think they had, like, a love-hate relationship, but it ultimately manifested into hatred towards most women in general. So he would later tell psychologists that he had conflicting feelings of anger and sexual attraction towards his mother and often fantasized about killing her as he got older. But that alone is not what made Gary grow up to be this serial killer called the Green River Killer, Just because he had the external forces to become a monster does not negate the fact that most killers are born with this innate disregard for other human beings, compassion, emotions, or even life in general, otherwise known as sociopathy. So not all abused or mistreated kids grow up to be monsters, but it doesn't help either. So I just have to throw that out there. Mm -hmm. He was not a good student in school. He reportedly had an IQ in the low 80s, His first act of violence was when he was 16 years old and he attacked a 6-year-old boy after luring him into the woods. He stabbed the boy multiple times into his ribs. A 6-year-old? A 6-year-old. He stabbed him multiple times into his ribs and liver, but thankfully the boy survived. But Gary was never identified as the assailant, so he was never charged for that attack. He graduated by the skin of his teeth and joined the Navy in 1969. He married his longtime girlfriend, Claudia, but when Gary was stationed in Vietnam, the pair kind of grew apart geographically and emotionally. And Claudia started seeing other men, and Gary developed an affinity for prostitutes due to an insatiable appetite for sex. He caught gonorrhea more than once, but somehow that didn't stop him from picking up prostitutes, and not using protection. So they eventually split up in January of 1972, and he moved on to wife number two, Marsha Winslow, in 1973. While he was married to Marsha, he became obsessed with religion. He would go door to door trying to convert anyone he could. He became so obsessed, he would read the Bible out loud constantly at home and at work at times crying as he read it out loud. What the heck? But at the same time, he was like so desperately trying to emulate Jesus and learn his teachings. He was also demanding Marsha to have sex with him multiple times a day in inappropriate places, outside, wherever he wanted, while at the same time, he was also still spending money on prostitutes. Marsha, who struggled with her weight for years, eventually got gastric bypass surgery and she lost a ton of weight. And then suddenly men started finding her attractive, and this made Gary really upset. He could cheat with prostitutes, but God forbid she'd just get male attention. This naturally caused problems in their marriage. And to add to that rocky foundation was the domineering mom who, if you thought washing Gary's genitals was bad when he was a teen. She was an even more invasive mother-in-law. She controlled everything in Gary and Marsha's house, from their spending and finances to the clothes that Gary could and couldn't wear. She would also make demeaning remarks to Marsha as a mother, claiming that she couldn't properly take care of their young son. Marsha was up against it. She had a piece-of-shit husband and a monster-in-law for a mother-in-law. So, seven years into their marriage, she filed for divorce and left in 1981. Shortly after their divorce, Gary was arrested for the first time for soliciting a prostitute. But this run-in with the law didn't steer him away from sati- satiating his supercharged appetite for sex, and he continued to pick up prostitutes along the sea Strip, which is a road that connects Seattle to Tacoma, and it runs along the Green River. But he, of course, kept this facet of his life very private. He was essentially living two different lives, one as a doting father and one as this insatiable sex maniac. Sex addict. Yeah. Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah, or like BTK. We saw in that story, too, which we covered a while back. But he completely led two totally different lives.
1: Yeah, church man.
0: Yeah. Boy Scout leader, Mm -hmm. all the things. So he continued to satisfy his appetite for sex by paying for prostitutes. However, even that wasn't cutting it. He needed more in terms of control. He came upon a young 16-year-old girl named Wendy Lee Caulfield. So Wendy was a troubled girl who often found herself in trouble. She started running away from home at a young age after her parents divorced in the 70s. Living with her mother, they often struggled financially, living in either low-income housing or tents outside. In 1982, she became a prostitute, and she struggled with substance abuse and often had run-ins with police. And her existence was just really sad to me, because before she ever had a chance to actually turn her life around, she ran into Gary Ridgeway, who ended up strangling the poor girl with her own underwear and then leaving her on the banks of the Green River.
1: And killed her? Mm
0: -hmm. Mm-hmm. She was found on July fifteenth, 1982, and it was determined that she had died about a week prior. There was very little evidence left behind, so the case went cold, but over the next five weeks, he took five more victims. It was like he went from zero to 60. On rampage. Yes. But these first killings set off what would become a killing spree for the next 20 years and his career as the green river killer would include at least 71 women ranging in age from 12 to 31 and the majority of them were either prostitutes or runaways reports would come out sporadically about missing girls or women in the area and remains were often found in the wooded area along the green river and the seattle tacoma airport But at the time, there was just not enough evidence to determine who was behind this. And I'm just making an assumption here, although I'm inclined to think it's correct. I don't think a lot of these were investigated because these women were sex workers or they were runaways. Makes sense. I would like to think that the younger ones, like the 12 to 17-year-old runaways who aren't yet considered adults, would have had more... Of an investigation or more effort put into their cases, but I don't think any of the adult cases were ever truly looked into.
1: I mean, I say makes sense. Like the assumption makes sense. Yeah. Just because they don't have family searching for them and whatnot.
0: Yeah, I mean, their families might just assume that, like, they might not even know that they're really truly missing. Mm-hmm. So, as the victim list grew, a task force force was created to try to create a profile of the suspect. They even enlisted the help of Ted Bundy, who we haven't talked about on this podcast before, but Ted Bundy is an infamous serial killer. And at the time he was sitting on death row and he offered to help the Green River task force in identifying a possible profile of the Green River killer. And according to reporting by John Kuroski, for all that's interesting. Ted Bundy offered his insight and suggested that the Green River killer might be revisiting his dump sites to perform necrophilia on the corpses. So he recommended that investigators stake out the grave sites and wait for him to return. They were also able to collect some samples from the sites, but they couldn't really do much with the samples because you have to remember, at this time technology was not as advanced as it is now. Testing DNA was just not even a thing. It's hard to even imagine a time like that before DNA testing became a thing and how hard it would be to find a killer and prove that they're guilty. It's
1: so different from the cases you have now where you're like, oh, they figured out where they were in 48 hours and they know everything that happened. Yeah. It's wild. Yeah. And it's insane to think they confronted a fellow serial killer on death row for his freak mindset for an advice on like how would you think about this
0: right exactly to get his insight like who who would know better than a fellow serial killer
1: yeah super weird reminds me of real quick reminds me of catch me if you can yes and great movie frank abagnale and frank Mm -hmm. abagnale jr he ran forever got caught and then ended up working for the fbi and helping them yeah crazy
0: yeah So this task force had to work with what they had, though. So any time a body was found, they would collect as much as they could from the crime scene. They'd collect, collect cigarette butts and chewed up gum on the ground, even blades of grass that might have hair or fibers on them from around the crime scene. But they collected as much as they could and just still never really got anything of significance to go after one specific person. So anyway, as Gary added to his list of victims, his MO was often to prey on very young, vulnerable girls who appeared to either be runaways or sex workers, like I said, and he would often pick them up at truck stops or little hole-in-the-wall dive bars along Highway 99, just right outside of Seattle, and he would show them pictures of his son in an attempt to gain their trust and lure them into his car. Then after driving around for a bit, he would park his car and take them into the woods. He would force himself on them before strangling them to death. And at first, he would often just use his hands. But as victims started putting up a fight, they would scratch and bruise his arms. And he didn't want to have to explain why he had these markings. So he started using ligatures. After he would dump... What is it? What are ligatures? Like rope or cable, just gotcha. like something to use to strangle. So after he would kill these victims, he would dump their bodies in the woods along the Green River, or he would weigh them down and actually put them in the water. And in an attempt to throw off investigators, he would litter the crime scene with cigarette butts or chewed up gum because he didn't smoke or chew gum.
1: Oh, my goodness. And the lack of... Like you said, the lack of technology versus today. I was thinking when they're grabbing blades of grass and, you know, rocks and it's like a little kid's collection Mm -hmm. because it doesn't, they don't have anything to test it.
0: Right. But I think they're just hopeful that like something will contain something down the line or match up. Yeah. Yeah. So by the end of summer in 82, he had killed nine women and he has admitted to actually going back to some of the sites where he dumped the bodies to have sex with the bodies Long after he had killed them. No way. So Ted Bundy was right. Wild. So in September of that year, he picked up a girl named Deborah Lorraine Estes from a hotel. Deborah was a runaway who left home after suffering from sexual abuse at the hands of her own biological father. She was only fourteen, so she re- she was reported missing, and she was picked up by police who brought her into their station. She told police she had been raped by a client because I'm guessing she was having sex at that time to make money to get by on the street. So she goes to the station to look at photos of potential suspects, and after she finished talking to them, they dropped her off at the hotel where she was living, and on that same day, she met Gary Ridgway. Gary picked her up and drove her less than an hour away from the hotel, killed her, And then her body wasn't found until six years later.
1: Six years. Mm
0: -hmm. By the end of 1982, he was up to 16 victims. That following spring, he started up again, and by April 30th, he picked up Marie Malvar. And this is where things start to change. Marie was working as a sex worker, and her boyfriend acted as her pimp. So when Marie was picked up by Gary Ridgway, her boyfriend got this bad feeling and hopped into his car to follow them, but he was stopped at a stoplight and he lost track of them. So Marie never came home that night and a search began the very next day. So her boyfriend, her dad, and the police were all looking for this truck that the boyfriend saw her drive off in. And as they're looking for this truck, they come upon it sitting in a driveway and the driveway belonged to Gary Ridgway. So they questioned Gary, but without any evidence of Marie, they just let him go and leave. However, this did put him on police's radar as a possible person of interest in all these other Green River killings. So a few days after Marie's disappearance, Gary picked up 21-year-old Carol Ann Christensen on May 3rd. Carol was a single mother working as a waitress, and she actually knew Gary. They had hooked up before. So he picks her up, but this time he strangled her to death. Then he put a grocery bag over her head, placed dead fish on her chest, poured a bottle of wine all over her body, and then left ground-up sausage in her hands. Her body was found five days later. And I don't know if he just did this to, like, change his M.O., because he was questioned about Marie Malvar's disappearance, so maybe he was doing this to kind of make it look like this was someone else and not him. Mm-hmm. But, of course, that year, his death toll continued to grow, and it got up to 41 victims. And in 1984, he was questioned by police and given a polygraph test, and he passed.
1: No conscious.
0: <laughs> right. I mean, that's that, I guess, is why they're not admissible. Can you imagine? I mean, he has killed all these people. How was he how was he capable of passing a lie detector test?
1: No conscious,
0: yeah. Yeah, and I mean, maybe they're more accurate now that a time has gone by, but I don't know. So he's already known for his involvement with prostitutes. Now I think police, you know, have their eyes on him as a likely suspect. But when he passed the polygraph, I'm sure it probably threw them for a loop. So in 1985, he's single, he has a young son, and Gary starts to explore his dating pool by attending Parents Without Partners meetings. He dated around within the group and finally settled on Judith Mawson in 1985, and they got married in 1988.
1: It's crazy that he can fool these chicks into marrying him.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. After they met, Gary's growing list stalled a bit. The year he met Judith in 1985, he didn't kill at all. And then the following year in 86, he took the life of one victim that we know of, Patricia Michelle Barsak, and one more the following year in 87, Roberta Joseph Hayes. And then he took three years off. So he goes like from zero to 60, killing tens of women every year to then just none. And Judith later said in an interview with a local reporter, she said, quote, I feel like I have saved lives by being his wife and making him happy. End quote.
1: It's kind of a weird thing to say.
0: That's exactly what I thought. I, I thought to myself, what an odd thing to say. To paint yourself out to be a hero in a situation where so many women were victims of your sick husband. If I were you, I'd be hiding under a fucking rock.
1: But you're wanting a pat on the back.
0: Exactly. He only
1: killed two when he was with me. Yeah, you're you welcome. Thank me for that.
0: Exactly.
1: Three years he didn't kill anybody, just for the record. Yeah. Three. Yeah, woohoo.
0: <laughs> you're welcome. That's weird. So members of the task force started finding more commonalities between the victims, and namely, there were green carpet fibers on some of the evidence that was collected from the scenes. On April 8, 1987, a search warrant was issued for the home and vehicle of Gary Ridgway. It took four years for them to finally search his home after he was originally put on the police's radar after Marie Malvar's disappearance. But when they finally searched his home, the carpet in his home had recently been replaced and there was no remnant of green flooring left in his house, even though his roommates were able to provide photographs from inside Gary's home showing that he did have green carpet at one point. Wild. Feeling confident that he was the last one to be seen with Marie, they still took some saliva samples from Gary. And I don't know if this just, like, scared him into quitting his killing, but between 1987 and 1998, he took only two more victims that we know of. And then in 2001, advancements were made in DNA testing. And in a last-ditch effort, forensic scientists at Washington State Patrol Crime Lab went back through the evidence they previously, collect- previously collected from all those years prior from the Green River Killers victims. And Beverly Hymix, so she's a forensic scientist at the lab, said, quote, we didn't have a lot to work with, but we went through a lot of evidence again. We rinsed all the fingernails and took for to look for trace evidence and swabbed the ligatures for cellular material. With one girl, we were able to find a few sperm clinging to her pubic hair. End quote. They were able to pull evidence from three victims that resulted in DNA profiles that they could test against Gary Ridgway's saliva from 1987, and it was a match in all three cases.
1: How crazy.
0: Yeah. So, on November 30th of 2001, Gary was working at the Kenworth Truck Factory, where he had been working for 30 years as a spray painter, when police showed up to arrest him on suspicion of murdering four women back in the 80s. Three more victims were added to that indictment after forensic scientists were able to draw connections from the paint that was on Gary Ridgway's clothes, likely from his job spray painting, Mm -hmm. to paint that was found at the crime scenes on some of the victims. So thank God they did collect everything they did. Even though it took decades for them to tie it all together, it didn't go to waste, thank God. Mm -hmm. So Gary was charged, ultimately, with 48 murder charges, and in exchange for life imprisonment instead of the death penalty, he agreed to plead guilty and tell the investigators where the remains of his victims were located. He was sentenced to 48 life sentences to be served consecutively, with an additional 10 years on each sentence for tampering with evidence, so an additional 480 years. Gary Ridgway confessed to more murders than any other serial killer in America, He admitted to police that he targeted prostitutes because they were easy to pick up and because he hated them. He said he would gain their trust by acting completely normal and making sure he was clean-shaven. He would leave some of his son's toys in his truck so they would know he had a son and it would put them at ease. But in his mind, he admits that the whole time he would just be thinking, literally, quote, sweet talker so I can kill the bitch, end quote. And he also bragged about this being his real career, saying, quote, choking is what I did and I was pretty good at it, end Oh quote. my gosh. He also confessed to necrophilia and admitted that he started burying his victims so that he would be less inclined to commit necrophilia. In 2011, a 49th victim was found, which added another life sentence to his term, Gary Ridgway is now serving the rest of his natural life at the Washington State Penitentiary. Penitenti- oh my god. Penitentiary. Thank you. In Walla Walla, Washington. The actual number of his victims remains unknown, and as recently as January of 2021, the remains of a 14-year-old girl found in 1984 were identified as Wendy Stevens, a reported runaway and Gary's youngest victim. And at the moment he remains the suspect in at least 12 other unsolved murders.
1: So he's commit he's a, a proven himself guilty to how many?
0: So that's proven the thing I one. cannot get like cold hard specific numbers. And that's what's kind of bothering me about this because this case I've heard that his victims range from the age of 12 to 31. Then I hear that his youngest victim was actually 14. Regardless, it's still very young and awful. I've heard that the number is in the 70s. I've also read that it's in the 90s. So, I mean, we don't know. And until he comes out and, you know, maybe admits it, I don't think we'll ever really know. I mean, now he's in his 70s. He's got poor health, apparently, Um, I mean, I don't think he's going to live much longer. I don't think we're ever really going to fully know the truth about what he did. How do you even possibly remember that many, unless you're keeping track? I was just going to say,
1: unless he has a list, he probably doesn't know.
0: Exactly. And how do you know exactly where every single one of them was? So, I don't know. I mean, this is one of those cases where, you know, I've summed it up in 25 minutes, but this could easily be a multi-episode podcast in itself, just studying the the character of Gary Ridgway and, like, how does somebody... How does somebody become so evil and are, then get away with it for so long?
1: Are there documentaries on this guy?
0: I'm sure there are. I mean, I saw a few on YouTube, but no some of them didn't. are really short. Some of them have actual interviews with him. So you can hear him speak and he comes off as just like a normal guy. I you mean, should the,
1: put one on the, on the Instagram.
0: I'll put it on the Instagram so you can see. And it was kind of baffling because I was watching, waiting for something to kind of trigger like a red flag. Like something. a tick. To re- Yes. And, you know, he's just talking. He almost looks like a kid. You know, like, he almost has mannerisms like a child uh, when he's talking. And then he he can just be talking about, you know, his childhood and this and that. And then he'll say, yeah, I just said to myself, just sweet talker so I can kill the bitch. Like, those words came out of his mouth. And it's just like... It's so baffling because there's a huge disconnect between this monster you envision killing upwards of 70 people to this guy in this interview just talking about... So casually. Like, I don't know. It's just, I think that's something that baffles a lot of people about true crime is just like, what makes somebody do this? Mm -hmm. Because you and I would never do something like this. You couldn't pay me to do something like this. And then there's people who go out and do it for their own pleasure.
1: On a regular basis. Like it reminds me too of that one weirdo, the night stalker.
0: Oh my gosh, yeah. Crazy. Crazy. And obviously, there is some sort of chemical imbalance. There's something wrong.
1: Something's There's think, a disconnect.
0: Yeah. But I mean, yikes. It's Big insane. yikes. It's
1: insane. Good job, Kelly.
0: Thank you. So, our next episode is going to be about Joe Metheny. And if you haven't heard about him,
1: then you're just like me. give us some uh, reviews
0: yeah give us just a fair warning maybe like don't be eating when you hear the next one i'll just give you that
1: oh great i'm looking forward to this
0: yeah all right uh yeah leave us a review i really appreciate it thank you all so much for listening we'll be back really soon
1: mama mystery out bye